don't want to read from Isaiah 61. I think we'll start with Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And Matthew chapter 5, I'll just read in from verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We'll end our reading there for now. For Claire and I, our favorite genre of film to watch is real-life true stories. And sometimes these can be a source of great joy, and they leave you with a happy feeling. But recently... Claire's complained that a lot of the films I've picked for us to watch have been fairly upsetting, pretty sad, dire circumstances. And at this point, the temptation would be for me to say, well, actually, I'm not usually the one who gets upset about films. I'm not usually the one who responds with tears. But the problem with that would be making it seem like the one who cried was the one who had the problem when actually it may be me who has the problem. And I think it's a problem that many men have. We know that it's no secret that generally speaking, and I accept that's a generalization, women do deal with their emotions with tears. And they do so more frequently than men. And I think they do so better than we do. I think it's a quality that we as men could learn from rather than mock. Have we forgotten how to mourn? Do we think of tears as a sign of weakness when actually there can often be a greater strength of character in one who knows how to express sadness outwardly rather than pretending to deal with it inwardly or just pretending that it doesn't exist? Erwin Lutzer wrote a book, One Minute After You Die, and he says this wisely, I think. Some Christians have mistakenly thought that grief demonstrates a lack of faith. Thus, they have felt it necessary to maintain strength rather than deal honestly with a painful loss. Grief that deals honestly with the pain is a part of the healing process. And we're looking at mourning tonight. We're looking at lament. And lament is a form of praise to God. It is a gift of God for us to lament. In fact, it is a command of God that we know how to lament properly. In our English dictionaries, it's defined as a way to express passionate grief about something. And mainly the mourning that Jesus is commending to his disciples in the Beatitudes on this famous sermon 
It's more than mourning over the loss of a loved one, though that is where I want to start tonight as we seek to apply this to ourselves in two main ways. As disciples of Christ, we have great hope in the fact that this world is not our home, it is not our final destination, and contrary to a lot of what we've observed in the last couple of years, our goal in life is not to stay alive on earth for as long as possible at the expense of everything else. Our goal in life as Christians is to give glory to God for every day that he gives us breath. And when that breath is stopped, we will then live for his glory eternally and share in his glory. Here on earth, we live in service of God. We live in submission to Jesus Christ as our Lord. But in pursuing that goal, glorifying God on earth, we don't want to hold on too dearly to this world or even our own physical existence because we have a far greater hope in the future. To quote 2 Corinthians 4 and into chapter 5, whatever light momentary affliction we suffer here on earth is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that's our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling." This is a groaning that we all experience as human beings. It's a groaning that creation around us shares. We groan, we mourn because of sin. You either mourn because of human sinfulness or because of the effect that sin has had upon the earth. It has led to death and disaster and suffering and you don't need to tell me the effect of sin on the earth because you experience it, we all do. So this beatitude that Jesus taught his disciples is about mourning over sin, but it's also about mourning over the consequences of sin. And I think that we'll see that as we look a bit further at this theme. But thankfully, you'll be glad to know, this beatitude is not without hope. In fact, it's full of hope. It's, a, it's an excellent verse of hope. But we do first need to look at mourning, so bear with me. Let's just explore the words of this uh, verse under two main headings that the verse provides, mourning and comfort. Firstly, mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think that's fascinating. What could it possibly mean that there is blessing and comfort in mourning? I was speaking to a student at the college this week, and we were talking about this Sunday, and I said I was thinking about preaching on this verse. And he said to me, do you think Jesus is talking about mourning over sin or mourning over a loved one who has died? Very good question. And I think, as I've said already, the context of this passage makes it clear that Jesus is primarily talking about mourning over sin. But, and I think this is crucial, we can apply this in a more general way to mourning over the loss of a loved one or a difficult circumstance. Luke 6.21, we see a version of this beatitude. It's slightly different. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. 
And as disciples of Christ, we know that there's more than one reason that we would have to weep on earth. So I want to apply this in two ways. Firstly, we'll have a look at mourning over sin's effects. And naturally, the first thing that came into your head when you saw mourning was death, I would assume. When someone close to you dies, you enter a period of mourning. You spend time in sorrow as you remember their life, as you reflect upon uh, what they meant to you, and you need time to process that they're gone. And I want to say up front, that's not the wrong response. It's not wrong to be sad for the right reasons. So does the Bible have any examples that show us that it's okay to mourn, that show us the correct way to mourn in a way that honors God? And I'll say, yes, it does. It has many examples. There is a whole book called Lamentations. It's a very difficult read, a very honest book, a very helpful book that can help us. But we also have the Psalms, and the Psalms are full of poetry that express the deepest sadness of the heart of the psalmist. We call those psalms laments. And in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Rogop writes this, every human being has the same opening story in life. Life begins with tears. It's simply a part of what it means to be human. To cry is human, but lament is different. The practice of lament is not as natural for us because every lament is actually a prayer, a statement of faith. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting person wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness to us. And that, that paradox of the problem of pain and the promise of God's goodness is presented very clearly in Psalm 13, which begins like this. How long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? And it ends with this. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We know also that Jesus cried himself. He cried because he heard that his friend Lazarus had passed away. As we were talking to the kids at Gift on Friday night, the shortest verse in the New Testament is Jesus wept. And it may be the shortest verse, but it is one of the most revealing verses because it emphasizes that Jesus was human like you and I, that he knows our weaknesses, that he felt the pain that we know in loss. And I think the writer of the gospel deliberately chooses not to leave out the fact that Jesus cried because it was not an embarrassing thing. It's not embarrassing for Jesus to cry over the loss of a loved one and it's not embarrassing for us to do so and it is not wrong. God has given us these emotional responses to help us process loss. Without mourning properly, we would simply bottle things up until our sadness overflows. It's why counselors will invite their patients to sit and pour out their hearts and minds to them so that they can work slowly through the pain and the anguish that they feel but we need to express what we're feeling deep down before we can move on and be comforted. Perhaps one reason the entertainment industry is one of the most profitable in the world is because it provides distractions from the real issues that we face in life. Um, back in 2018, they 
looked at how much money the American uh, home entertainment and cinema entertainment industry made, and it was hundreds of billions, I think it was over $700 billion. It's far easier and more comfortable for us to fill our minds with make-believe and fiction to provide us with a smile on our face for a time and distract us from the real issues. And I'm not saying there's a problem with that. There is a problem if we don't deal with the issues that we're facing. If we instead turn to a film for two hours, we get two hours of distraction. But what about when those two hours are finished? We need something else to distract us, unless we're willing to deal with the issues. I wonder if anyone knows what a lacrimatory is. A lacrimatory was a little bottle used by ancient Romans and Greeks to store tears. They would often bury these little bottles with their loved ones when their loved one dies as a sign of respect. In the American Civil War, wives would store up the bottles of tears and when their husbands came back from war, they would show them how much they missed them. Some historians doubt how reliable that is historically. There's a conflict. But whether it's historically reliable or not, it shows us that throughout history, from the ancient times to the American Civil War to today, humans have always had reason to be sad. We've always had things to cry about. And that is because of suffering. Whenever I was at school, I used to tell people that I never really cried, and I wasn't lying. I really didn't cry much. But it wasn't because I didn't want to cry, it's because I thought it was a sign of weakness. But this isn't true. And it is right for us to deal properly with the emotions that we feel when we lose someone. Now this is one aspect of mourning, mourning over the effect of sin, which is death. But I want us to look at another form of mourning. The one that Jesus is really focusing on is mourning over sin. In the Greek language, there were apparently nine different words for grief. And here we see the strongest word in that language for grief. And I just thought the fact that people of Jesus' day had nine different words to describe grief shows us that they had much to be sorrowful for. So it's even more amazing when we come to the second half of this verse. Because Jesus is going to tell these people that yes, you're grieving and you should mourn but there is comfort available. Now, the kind of grief here is the most severe because it's sorrow over personal sin. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. With godly grief comes an acceptance that you are helpless to deal with your sin that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to remove your sin, but the comfort is found in knowing the source of all comfort, the only one who is called Savior, Jesus Christ. And with Christ, we can have lasting joy and comfort. But just to understand what this mourning over sin really is, we can use a couple of biblical examples, and we can start with where we were this morning in Ezra. Ezra chapter 10, verse 1 tells us Ezra prayed a prayer of confession. He weeped. He cast himself down before the house of God in view of all the people. And as they confessed their sin with him corporately, they weeped as well. 
Psalm 119, verse 136 says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. There was a palpable heartache in response to the blatant disregard for God's will. So Ezra's crying over his own sin. The psalmist is crying because he sees so much sin in the world. And if we take Paul as an example in the New Testament, there's at least three things that he mourned over in relation to sin. Firstly, the continual sin of those who reject Christ and refuse to repent. Paul literally cried when he thought about those who were living as enemies of Christ. He describes that group as many, and it grieved him. Philippians 3.18. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Secondly, he mourned over his own indwelling sin. In Romans 7, he describes the battle against sin in the flesh. And in verse 24, he cries out, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And thirdly, Paul not only mourned over the sin that he saw in the world or his own sin, but over the sin that he saw in those entrusted to his care, that is Christian brothers and sisters. It distressed him especially, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, it's just talked about a severe, heinous sexual sin, and he says, and you are proud, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? 2 Corinthians 12, <clears throat> I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over those who sinned earlier and have not repented. So Paul mourned over his sin, the sin of others, and especially when he saw sin in his fellow brothers and sisters. Do we cry out to God when we confess our sin? Does it bother us that much that we have angered God? Does it bother us whenever we see a brother or sister in Christ who's in unrepentant sin? When we do nothing about our sin, when we keep silent and we don't ask God to forgive us, when we don't ask Christ to save us from our evil nature, the psalmist says our bones waste away. In other words, if we don't mourn over our sin and confess it, we will be miserable. This is the misery of living with a guilty conscience and stubbornly refusing to admit that you need God's forgiveness and help. But why would a follower of Christ ever feel such grief over wrongdoing? Because we know how much it cost our Savior to pay the price for our sins. Some people in the first few centuries after Christ thought that if he had paid for their sin fully, then nothing was stopping them from doing whatever they wanted. Paul said this is absolutely wrong. This is no way to mourn over sin. This is how those people thought, and I quote, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Basically, they said, God gives us grace when he forgives our sins. So the more we sin, the more grace we get. That was the ridiculous claim that people were making. They were cheapening God's grace. But the grace of God is not cheap. The grace of God poured out on us cost him his only son. That's why we must mourn over our sin. And as we grow to love God's word more and study it, we learn to love God more and we learn to love what he loves and hate what he hates, 
And so our perspective on sin should be shaped by what God says about it. So whenever we live our lives and observe the chaos of immorality, the widespread rejection of the law of God in our world, we ought to mourn over that and and come to our knees in prayers of lament. We will cry out with compassion and grief, just like our Savior did over Jerusalem in Luke 19 and Matthew 23. It says that, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Do we respond to the sin in our city like this, weeping compassionately? D.A. Carson says most of us prefer merely to condemn. We are prepared to walk with Jesus through Matthew 23 and repeat his pronouncements of doom, but we stop before we get to the end of the chapter and join him in weeping over the city. We are to be mourners, but thankfully, even in our mourning, there is great blessing and there is comfort for those of us who believe. And I want us to focus the rest of our time on that comfort. We know what kind of mourning is being referred to. So we need to understand how can this be considered a blessing? Now, I don't want us to understand the word blessing as happiness, okay? Whenever the Carolina Panthers score a touchdown, I am happy, but that isn't very often. Whenever they concede a touchdown to the other team, which is very often, I'm not happy. So that's a a fluctuating state of happiness. That's not joy. And that's not what Jesus is talking about because my happiness is depending on something I have no control over. It quickly changes to frustration. So Jesus is not saying about that kind of happiness, nor is he saying that people who mourn should have a perpetual smile on their face and never frown. Instead, this is spiritual joy. There's a traditional Welsh rendering of this verse, which I thought was quite funny. Um, my Welsh isn't very good. Gwynibud, which means white is their world. It's a saying that means everything is well with them. Admittedly, in our race-obsessed culture, that probably wouldn't go down very well. But what they're trying to say is, not that everyone has a happy feeling, but everything is well with them. They're in a state of joy, regardless of their personal circumstance. This applies to both mourning over loss and mourning over sin. Um, For example, in recent months in this church, I've heard from the lips of members in this church who can testify to knowing God's comfort, the comfort of his spirit, as Jesus promised in John 16. They've known a comfort even as they've been mourning. They can't explain it, but they've known it. Jesus has promised to comfort those of us who mourn. The reason why those who mourn are blessed is because they will be comforted. There's no maybes. They will be comforted. In fact, in terms of sin, as soon as we mourn properly over our sin, we are comforted. When we confess our sin and repent from it, God sees our genuine mourning and he consoles us with his abundant forgiveness. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the comforter. He's the one that gets alongside us and reminds us every time we're wallowing in self-despair over our iniquity, that we are forgiven, that he is with us, 
And we do not need to fear judgment for our sins. Now, Christians, we know that we continue in a battle against sin. That battle will rage on until the day that Christ returns and puts all of his enemies under his feet at last. We should be concerned if we're indifferent to sin or if we don't really put up much of a fight against temptation. But I want to tread carefully here. I'm not condemning anyone who is genuinely struggling hard to overcome a weakness in some area in their life as a Christian. But I also don't want us to think that sin in the Christian is a light matter. Remember, Paul cried about this. I will simply say this. Remember that with every temptation that you face, God will always provide a way out. That's what he's promised. Remember that your sins are forgiven. And remember and reflect on what it cost Christ to pay the penalty for your sins. And I think remembering these three things will help us in the battle. But if you don't know forgiveness, then you don't know peace from God. Real, lasting comfort is available to you. But first, you need to confess your sin and your inability to change. The Bible that we have as the Word of God is not a self-help book. It does not give us instructions to follow so that we can change ourselves. Rather, it points us to the only one who is able to change us from the inside out. It shows us the one and only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God's own son and he came into this world and as we've said already, he wept, he felt the struggles that we face. He knows your circumstance, everyone's is different, but he's fully aware of it. And he can provide comfort because he was punished for our sins. He suffered in our place to deal with the punishment we deserve for our greatest problem, our sin. This Jesus is the one who knows the seriousness of our sins. He knows that we're powerless to deal with it. And he offers us the only way to be forgiven. And we see that in the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why are they blessed? Because the poor in spirit are those who recognize their sinfulness. That's the first step towards receiving forgiveness and comfort. Because we can't accept the solution to a problem that we won't accept that we have. The doctor won't give you medicine if you won't admit that you're sick. And so we see in this quotation from Thomas Watson, mourning precedes comfort as the lancing of a wound precedes the cure. But I want to be clear tonight, mourning over sin and mourning over its consequences are two very different things. As a child, if you were ever caught stealing something from your parents and you apologized, were you apologizing because you were sorry that you broke the fifth and eighth commandment? Or were you apologizing because you were caught and you feared the punishment? Well, for a biblical example, we can think of Judas. The Bible tells us that when Judas betrayed Jesus and realized what he had done, he felt guilty, gave back the money that he received, and then he hanged himself. That seems to be mourning over sin. But actually, he regretted what he had done and was afraid of what would happen to him. He was mourning because of the consequence of his sin, and he added to that sin by killing himself. He did not seek forgiveness from Christ. So there are two different things. Jesus is promising joy in Matthew 5, verse 4, for those who truly repent from their sin and seek forgiveness. They know they're wrong, 
They hate their sin and they believe that Jesus Christ can forgive them and bring them forgiveness and comfort. Psalm 32 is very similar to this beatitude, although the blessing and comfort in that psalm are front-loaded, so it reads like this. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in in whose spirit is no deceit. So there you have the blessing. And then the morning is described in verse 3. I mentioned it earlier. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. But there is comfort available if you will turn from your sin. The comfort we receive and the joy is amazing. It can't be bought. It can't be achieved any other way than to realize that we're broken by our sin. That we are helpless to fix our brokenness and to recognize what Christ has done for us. When we accept his forgiveness, we know comfort, not just in one moment, but forever. One day, we will go to be with him as children of God. We will go to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And there we know, if you've read Revelation, that there is no suffering, there is no pain, there is no sadness, because there is no sin. That's the ultimate comfort that we as Christians should look for. This week, one of my lecturers asked this question. It seemed a little bit out of the blue to me at the time. Do we forget the cosmic dimensions of our salvation? And I said, what's he getting at? Ephesians 1 verse 3 describes God's plan of salvation as including a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so that lecturer said, salvation is far more than forgiveness of sins. We will be given a new body. We will be given a perfected earth and heaven. God will restore and renew all of creation. And if we ignore this monumental reality, this great joyful news, then I suppose we limit salvation to come to Jesus, have your sins forgiven and be happy the rest of your life. Now, the gospel is not less than having your sins forgiven, but this good news that we have is so much more. We just need to dig into it deeper to know the comfort that Jesus is speaking of. But God knows our tears. He knows our struggles. He knows our pain. But all of our sufferings on earth are caused by by sin. Sin has destroyed the perfect creation that God has given us. It's even spoiled the good things that we try to do for him. But we're not in a hopeless situation. There is everlasting comfort available to us in Christ. God has always had a plan to restore what he made, what we have spoiled. Shortly before beginning his ministry, Jesus entered his local place of worship in his hometown, He picked up the scroll of Isaiah, and I read it earlier. He read this text. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. I was reading this yesterday in my quiet time, and I was struck that That's where Jesus chose to put the text down. He stopped reading from the scroll at the end of verse 1. The next line of that verse says, 
and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah 61 is a chapter full of blessing, rejoicing, and talks about everlasting joy. And there's a future fulfillment of chapter 61 that will include a complete end to all mourning. That's what we look forward to. Because Jesus knew what God had sent him to do. He came to offer comfort to all who mourn by taking away the cause of their suffering, their sin, and dealing for it once and for all. And so as he was hanging on the cross, dying in the most horrific way imaginable, he cried out, it is finished. The power of sin was destroyed and comfort was made available for all who repent, ask him for forgiveness, and in faith, submit to him as Lord of their lives. I said that that full comfort, where there will be no more mourning, is coming in a future day. But this comfort is available to you now. And those of us who know it already as a present reality, look forward to that complete comfort that Christ has promised in the eternal kingdom of God. And until that day, we do have reason to lament, but we do that in faith, trusting in God, a God who hears us, a great high priest who sympathizes with us in every weakness, in every sorrow, in all of our tears. He will return as the lamb in the midst of the throne who will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7, 17. So we can truly say, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Amen. We're going to close our time by singing the mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. And in this song, we sing of this comfort that's available to all who are in Christ with these words, once your enemy, now seated at your table. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near your enemy, you've made your friend. That's the comfort Jesus was speaking of. That's the comfort offered to us. And we'll stand and sing.